0: God's word this morning begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We'll turn now to 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 19 through 38. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary with the house in order to place the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. And the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. And the whole altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Also in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. And five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits was the other wing of the cherub. From the end of one wing to the end of the other wing were ten cubits. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubim were of the same measure and the same form. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. And he placed the cherubim in the midst of the inner house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out, so that the wing of the one was touching the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall. So their wings were touching each other in the center of the house. He also overlaid the cherubim with gold. Then he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. And he overlaid the floor of the house with gold, inner and outer sanctuaries, And for the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood, the lintel, and five-sided doorposts. So he made two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold, and he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the nave four-sided doorposts of olive wood, and two doors of cypress wood, and two leaves of the one door turned on pivots, and the two leaves of the other door turned on pivots. And he carved on it cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the engraved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid, and in the month Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. We'll turn now to the back of your bulletin and read together as a congregation Psalm 99. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: By total correctness, there would be quite a few, you couldn't sing, like this one holy 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 all the saints adore thee casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea Now, in revelation the saints aren't in heaven until the end of the book it's angels who cast down their golden crowns let's bow together in prayer Father, you are the great, holy, awesome, sovereign God, creator of a universe that is beyond our imagination and understanding. You made heaven and earth, and you made mankind, and you made man for yourself to enjoy you and to enjoy your glory forever. Not only that, to participate in your glory. Filling the earth and changing the earth and subduing the earth and bringing it under man's rule. This all came from you. What came from man was sin. But we thank you that your name is merciful and gracious. You do abound in loving kindness. And we thank you that we can enter your presence because you sent the second person of the triune God to join the human race forever. And now our Lord Jesus Christ is one of us seated at your right hand where now he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And on his head are many diadems and he is the word of God. And the he is the one who has the sprinkled garment with blood. He is the one who paid for our sins and bought us with a great price. We thank you for that. And we thank you that weekly, every Lord's Day, you call us into your presence. You invite us to join you in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And... There you give to us. You are the giving God. We come because you invite us, and you invite us to give to us, and then we, in turn, enjoy your great gifts and respond in praise and adoration. So we thank you for the forgiveness of sins, and now we pray that you would bless us with your word and then feed us at your table. This we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You might think today, uh, if, you, if you watch churches, if you've been keeping up with churches, say for the last 50 years, maybe even longer than that, you might think, well, I don't really need the Old Testament. We have Romans. Romans. And Romans is called the Magna Carta of the New Testament. And we have the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John tells us at the end of the Gospel that the purpose in writing is so that we might believe. And we might think, well, you know, now that I know that I trust Christ and that I have been justified, that is... I'm declared righteous in God's sight, so I have a right relationship with God. And now that I know that I can enter his throne room and receive mercy and grace at any time, well, what's the point of reading the Old Testament stories? And particularly, what is the point of Exodus chapters 25 through 40 with all that detail and measurement, description and cloth description of the Old Testament tabernacle and the priestly system? And what's the point of reading 1 Kings chapters 6 and 7? Again, with the measurements of the temple. And uh, you can go on. What's the point of reading? Probably many of us don't read, but... If you follow a reading program, at least you read once a year Ezekiel 40 through 48. And again, it's detailed in measurements and shapes. What's the point of reading that? After all, we say, well, it's all been fulfilled, so I don't really need any of that. And yet Paul tells us that when he went around from house to house, he taught people the whole counsel of God and he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 that all scripture is inspired and all scripture is profitable. And if you read Ezekiel chapter 43, you might want to do that this afternoon. You know, when everybody's kicking a soccer ball and you could be sitting in a lawn chair reading your bible and looking really spiritual. You read Ezekiel 43, you discover that all the measurements he has commanded, Ezekiel's commanded to show to the people so that they might be ashamed of their sin. In other words, the measurements teach us something. We've been looking at the temple, and last week we gazed just a bit from Genesis And the garden with the river that comes down from a mountain and flows through the Garden of Eden and then breaks off into four rivers that go to the four corners of the earth. And Adam and Eve are supposed to fill this earth and follow those rivers around, fill it all up and subdue everything and rule over it. We looked at that. And then came sin. And sin caused them to be driven out of the garden And then we start a period, I mean, we could describe it in uh, vast detail, but I just want to talk about it in three or four sections. So we have the Mosaic period, we might call it the Priestly period. And we think of the water in the Garden of Eden, and then we move to this replica of the Garden of Eden called the Tabernacle. The only water that's there is a little laver. We're not given the measurements, but it's not that big. And then we move on from there to the permanent structure, Solomon's temple, and that labor turns into two different things. One is a bronze sea with 3,000 baths of water, however much that is, or 2,000 baths. Chronicles and Kings have different numbers there. And the water flows in a picture from the throne in 10 chariots with a laver on them of 40 baths each. We can see the waters expanding in the kingly era. So first we have the priestly, then we have the kingly. And then the, Israel has uh, fallen into great sin, and so they're carried off captive just as Leviticus 18 and 20 warned them that if they sin, they will be vomited out of the land. So they were vomited out of the land. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple and carted off with all the values, valuables in the temple and took them off to Babylon. And then came a restoration period, which is the period of the prophets. And in the period of the prophets, under Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra, they, they go, and I and, and, uh, should say Joshua and Zerubbabel, a, a temple is rebuilt. But the people cry who had seen the other temple because it's not near as glorious. We're not given much description of that, but during this period, uh, we are given Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is a, not a temple that's intended to be built, but a description by way of a temple of what's going to happen during that era. And in that temple, you don't just have a bronze sea and uh, chariots of water. You have a river flowing out of the temple that does something that's quite miraculous. It starts only ankle deep and it just keeps getting deeper as you go. Rivers don't do that, do they? Well, so there it is. And then we come to the Messianic era, or we might call it our era. And in our era, things are even more glorious. But when you look around, you can't see it. Not if you're looking for a street of gold. Not if you're looking for a jasper wall that is 144 cubits thick. Not if you're looking for a city that is 12,000 stadia cubed. You can't see any of that. But that's the era we live in. And in this city that has no temple because the Lord God is the temple, there flows a river from the top of this cube. In your Bible, it's described as 1,500 miles, of course, that's not Greek. It's 12,000 stadia. And it's important to think about 12,000 because in Revelation, you have sevens and twelves, and the twelves, of course, speak of Israel and of the apostles. But a river flows down, and it starts at the top where the throne is, and it comes down, and it has alongside of it a stream of gold, and on either side of the river, it has The tree of life, which in the Garden of Eden was one tree. Now it's a tree that borders all along this river. And the river apparently, you have to think about it, begins to split like at the Garden of Eden so that it flows out 12 different gates because each gate is a pearl. It's flowing out to the sea, the sea of humanity. Well, we looked at that. And in Revelation 21 and 22, if anyone's thirsty, they are offered to drink of the water free of cost. But to expand that, we would have to think about what Jesus said at the Feast of Booths when he stood up and he shouted out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come unto me. He who believes in me, out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, what that means, if you you put your thinking cap on and you just begin to meditate on this, you begin to realize what that means. Well, on one level, that's the Holy Spirit living within us. That's true. But flowing out, rivers of water? What is that? You take one saint, another saint, another saint, and millions of saints, and you take the city that is a woman at the end of Revelation, and you take the river that flows from the throne. What is it? Well, it's you and me. Rivers Of living water flowing from our inmost being we make up this stream that flows to all the world taking us all the way back to the Garden of Eden where this river came down and it went through Eden the Garden of Eden and it split into four rivers and clearly Adam and Eve were supposed to run down those rivers that is having children and everything expanding to the ends of the earth now we are that river well we looked at the two pillars of the temple the tabernacle had pillars also from which curtains hung but the temple had two pillars one named jockin and one named Boaz and these two pillars with their capital on top their crown on top were 23 cubits tall, so we're talking about 35 feet, and you look up and you see that lily up there, and one, one's a priestly pillar and one is a kingly pillar, and it defines the age of the kings, because Moses' age was the Moses of the, the priest. now we have priest and king, but those pillars are chopped down, taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, and what are we left with? Well, we have no pillars. When they come back and rebuild the temple, we're told nothing about that. What we are told in Zechariah's vision, his last vision, his eighth vision, that chariots rode out between two bronze mountains. So the pillars turn into these bronze mountains, and these horses are going out to fill the whole earth with what? Well, with the Word of God. So we think of the prophetic era, and if we could just use the term gospel, the good news spread all across the Oikumene. Well, that's, when we come down to the New Testament, the territory of the Roman Empire. And when this little temple was rebuilt, yet... It had bronze mountains from which horses ran out and spread the gospel so that synagogues were scattered all over that vast territory. Today we want to look at the two angels. Angels who stand ten feet tall. Angels who, when they spread their wings, they're touching, two of them, one touches one side of the holiest of holies, the other touches the other side, and they're linked hands in the center. And when they spread their wings, they cover the whole inner sanctuary, and their faces look out. And where their hands touch, it rises over the top of the Ark of the Covenant that has a kephra made of gold on it with two other cherubim. And this comprises where their wings touch and the wings of the cherubim that are underneath their wings. This comprises the throne of God. That's where he sits enthroned. Now, Genesis tells us, let me just read it to you. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretches out his hand and takes takes also from the tree of life and eats and lives forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve cannot come back in. When you go to the tabernacle, the tabernacle has a four-room, the outer room, and on the curtains that surround it, that make it up, there are cherubim, and then there is a blue curtain that divides it from the back room, which is called the inner room, and on it are cherubim, and once you come in, there are cherubim on the walls around, and then there's two cherubim on the top of the ark, and all of these pick up from the book of Genesis, and they tell us, you cannot go in, and only the high priest can go once a year. And that for just a little bit, and not without blood. And he has to make a smoke screen to go in to guard him. Then you come to the temple. And in the temple, the first thing we notice, we've talked about it, we've mentioned it, is the holiest of holies grows from 10 cubic, 10 cubits to 20 cubits. So the width and the length is now 20 cubits and the height is 20 cubits. It's a cube. And in there, something new is added. And what's added are these two olive gilded angels. They're covered with gold. And of course, we get the point The room is bigger, and now their wings are stretched all the way across. Just as the golden doors that are shut have a golden chain across it, they are guarding the way to God. If you find your way in there, you will be killed. Because they hold flaming swords that turn every direction. That's these olive trees. These olive angels. When you get to the new Jerusalem, where there's no temple, because the Lord God is the temple, we're told in Revelation chapter 21 that there are 12 gates, and each gate is a pearl, and at each gate is an angel. So you go up to the very top of this city, this bride, and the waters flow down, and there are gates. People can come in and out of them. But there's an angel standing there who's a guard because the text tells us no one who's immoral or a liar or a sorcerer, or unfaithful, or a coward can ever enter, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so, we see these angels guarding now twelve pearl gates. You know, you. I, I don't know how that. Well, it's it's a it's. It's a vision, that John is receiving. The thing is, the word is translated angels, but that is an incorrect translation. I mean, that's the word angelos in Greek, but it's incorrect because it gives us the wrong idea. When we think of the Garden of Eden, we know that what's standing there are angels, they are cherubim. And we know that when we get to the tabernacle and the covering over the ark, what's there are cherubim. That's what we're told. We're not just told they're angels, they're cherubim. And when we get to the temple, we're told that there are two cherubim, and now we have two more cherubim. Now we have four cherubim in the holiest of holies. But when we come to the new Jerusalem, the city that comes down from heaven, no, it's not cherubim. It's not angels. You see, it's mankind. You and me. So in the book of Revelation, when you first enter into heaven, when John first enters, he sees this throne and four living creatures and 24 elders around it. And the 24 elders are angels. And they are the ones who pour out bulls, blow trumpets, different things they do. And they're also the ones who cast down their crowns. And what happens through the course of Revelation are the 24 angels get off their thrones and give up their crowns. And by the end of the book of Revelation, the ones that are sitting on those thrones and crowned and doing the work, that is man. Why? Because the Lamb has overcome. Man was supposed to do it, but man sinned and it was taken away from him and given to angels. By the end of the book of Revelation, now man is back in his created position because of what the Lamb has done. And so now the guarding to this vast, huge city, the guarding's done by men. Well, now, I'm telling you that that's a vision. I'm telling you, I don't know what's going to happen exactly when Christ returns in his second coming. I don't know that. But but what I can tell you in Revelation is, this is a vision. This is something he's showed. And I can tell you, I think I can tell you with all authority, this is a picture of our times. Now, It hasn't come to fruition. The church is not that beautiful to be described that way, but this is our times. And this city is comprised of millions of churches around the world that are called this city. And this city has in it the Lord God as temple, the one who's enthroned, And from him, as he draws each person in, flows this river of water, flows out to a sea of people out there, so that they too can drink free of cost. That's the invitation. But it's us. It's you and me. So, we move then from two cherubim, or however, at the gate of Eden, to two cherubim in the tabernacle, to four cherubim in the temple. We've moved from the garden to the priestly age to the kingly age. And what happens in the age from the temple being torn down in 586 B.C. to the coming of Christ? What happens during that time? Well, I'll tell you what happens because God is developing this for us so we can read it and see what he's up to. This is what our God's up to. So in the temple, here's the Ark of the Covenant with the kepharet, the covering on it with two cherubim, and there are two other cherubim. They make up four cherubim. And when you come to the book of Ezekiel, that's what it's about. These four cherubim, who each have four faces, the face of a man, the face of an eagle, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and they are the chariot of God. And they fly God around. That's the picture. Why? Because Israel's been scattered out into the land and they're all over the place. They're not gathered into a bordered land like Judah. They're not in a city like Jerusalem. No, they're, they're out in the Oikumene. And what does God do? Well, he, he scoots around in His chariot to them. And then we see... These four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4, when God is enthroned with these four living creatures around him and he's enthroned on the crystal sea and there's a rainbow around him, there they are. Now, what's that all about? So, Hyde has read to us 1 Kings 6, 19 and following. The vast majority of that is uh, describing what we're talking about. And in that section, depending on your translation, you see the word inner sanctuary. Two words inner sanctuary. That is not in the Hebrew. It's true. It is the inner sanctuary. You've got to walk through the front sanctuary and you've got to open the golden doors, you've got to get the chain off, to walk into what's called, what's been translated as the inner sanctuary. So it is, it's, it's the second one in, but that's not the word. The word is Dabar. Do you know what Dabar means? Well, if you could read Hebrew, you would realize, well, this, this is a root. And the word debor is the word to speak. And the word "debar" is the word word. So this whole inner sanctuary, it is a sanctuary. It is the holiest of holies. The high priest can only come in once a year and just for a few seconds. And he's done and he's out and he's not back again for another year. It is the Holy of Holies, but it's called the Word. That's quite something. That's what Jesus is called. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Verse eleven. Again, I, I, I'm just going to state it straight out. This army that's riding out with the Lord on white horses is an army that comes from heaven. It is the saints with Him. But notice what it says, Revelation nineteen eleven. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and and in righteousness he judges and wages war now i told you last week the war is the war's already over in fact the previous verses blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the, the marriage supper of the lamb has taken place and now here comes a white horse rider and his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems. He's like an emperor and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe, not dipped in blood, sprinkled with blood because his robe was sprinkled with blood at the end of chapter 14, when the harvest took place and he tread out the winepress of God's wrath wine. And when you tromp around in a winepress, your, your, your garment gets sprinkled. Now, I will tell you this, there's a textual problem in the Greek here. So some, tra- some Greek manuscripts have dipped and some have sprinkled. If we take the context, we know which way to go. It's sprinkled with blood. And his name is called, look at that, the Word of God. There it is. Now, it's the Greek word logos now this time, but it comes out of the holy of holies that is called the Word. Now, the reason I think that's important, the reason I think that's important Is because what happens in chapter 22? So here in 19, you have this this horse rider riding out, and behind him other horse riders, and they have linen clothing, fine, bright, and clean. Because, you know, to come out of the Holy of Holies, which is what they've done, they're in heaven on the crystal sea in the beginning of chapter 15. Now they're coming out riding with Jesus. They have to have these clean, bright robes, which are described earlier here in chapter 19 as the righteous deeds of the saints, and they're riding out with him to wage war. Of course, that could mean swords and all. After all, this writer has a sword that comes out of his mouth with which he smites the nations, and he rules them with a rod of iron. But when a sword is in somebody's mouth, of course, they're not... You, they're, they're talking. The sword is a talk. And in the book of Revelation, and all the way back to Psalm 2, of course, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of war waged. But when you come to the New Testament, it's not so much a war of spears and so forth, is it, as Christians? No, it's a war of words. And that's what this army's riding out to do. To wage war, to conquer. So, we go out like these horse riders, following Christ. Or we go out, flowing down from the throne as a river, all for the purpose of doing what? Sharing the gospel, pronouncing the news. So they go out, and then you come to chapter 20, which we're not going to talk about today, and then you come to chapter 21. And as I told you last week, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, This new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, and there's no more sea, and we know that that is not talking about the oceans out there. It's talking about the waters above that sea. It's gone. Heaven and earth are now joined. Right now, we're in a joined heaven and earth. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 21 are about the final end. We're not there yet. Then, verses Nine and following in Revelation are a description of this city that comes down, and we know it's talking about our times because it has a tree that has leaves that are for the healings of the nations. That's that's the picture. Now we have two cherubim with their wings stretched all the way across, and God's holy room is holy. And it's called the Word of God. And these huge, 10-foot-tall cherubim, wings stretched, touching together all the way across 20 cubits. I shouldn't say 10 feet tall, 10 cubits tall. 15 feet tall, 30 feet stretched. They're in there guarding the way. Turn, if you would, to Zechariah, chapter five. Zechariah has night visions. And what you do is you start at night, you work your way to midnight, and then he has more visions that work your way all out to the daylight. At the beginning of the visions, you've got horse riders that are at rest. Nothing's going on on the earth. At the end, you have horse riders who are going out from between the bronze mountains. They're taking out the good news. and the, So there are these visions, and the visions match up. It's a chiasm. That doesn't concern us too much this morning. But in chapter 5, there's a vision. It's the sixth vision. Zechariah. Have you found Zechariah yet? I hear pages turning. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked and behold. Do you see that? Yeah. Eyes, look, and behold. Just another way of saying, look. So you got three ways of saying, this is important. I looked, I looked, I looked. And there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. Now, uh, there's a reason for that. Scrolls don't fly. I suppose when you're having a vision, a scroll can fly, I mean. But the point is, this scroll that's 20 cubits this way and 10 cubits this way has a gilded olive angel behind it. They're flying the scroll. They are the protectors of God's holiness. And God is concerned about his people, that his people be holy. And so here comes this flying scroll. And you you can tell, this, this is a work of God. This is what God is up to. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth through, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely, everyone, surely ev- everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares Yahweh of hosts, And it will enter the house of the thief and the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timbers and stones. Now, we've got a scroll. It's huge. Scrolls are... Well, just to use our dimensions, the scroll might be 30 feet long and one foot tall and you roll it up, you roll it all up and you can write on both sides. So you roll it up one way and then you unroll it the other way and you look at the other side. But this thing is like a billboard, it's huge. It's a big sign and on one side, it's talking about stealing. And on the other side, it's talking about swearing. And what it is, I presume, are commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Which is, if you divide the commandments into groups of five, which is the way it's generally done, the second group of five, right in the middle of that five, is the commandment, you shall not steal. The first group of five is the commandments that have to do with the Lord the second group of five are the social commandments and if you take the first group of five right in the middle of that is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain so what commentators think is you have a scroll that in one sense is summarizing these tables and on one side you take the middle of First five, and on the other side, you take the middle of the second five, and it summarizes. But also, this is a problem of this era, the prophetic era, the restoration era. They had a problem of thieving. Ezra points it out, Nehemiah points it out, and oh, Malachi points it out. You're robbing from God. How are we robbing from God? You're not bringing in the tithes and the offerings. So it's appropriate to this period. Well, now, Zechariah and uh, Haggai are sent out to help them start building the temple to encourage them. And these visions move from uh, nothing's going on to the new temple's completed and, and the horses are going out with the word of God. But in the midst, you have different visions that are, are, you know, capturing different aspects. And this aspect has to do with those two angels that we first meet in Solomon's temple, stretch out their wings, 20 cubits, and they stand 10 cubits tall. And now they're flying. The language that's used here in Zechariah chapter 5 Timber and stone comes from Leviticus chapter 14. So, what the language is saying here is something like okay, you know, well, let me back up. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Verse 15, cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to Yahweh, the work of the hands of craftsmen, and sets it up secretly, and all the people shall say, amen. Verse 16, cursed is he who distorts, uh, cursed is he who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say amen. So there's a whole section of curses here. And this scroll that's going out is a curse. And the scroll is flying out to clean up the new work of God. In other words, it's dealing with holiness. So what I want you to do is I want you to think of all these images together. You have this room that's 20 cubits cubed and it's called the Word. It's also called the Holy of Holies. And in it are these angels who are guiding the way to God's holiness and two of these angels fly with a scroll that is the Word of God and if there's a thief, this scroll is gonna come into this person's house and it's gonna spend the night and by morning it's gonna fall down timber and stone. And if there's somebody who is misusing God's name, this is gonna fly into their house and spend the night and it's gonna fall down timber and stone. It's because a house gets leprosy something green or something red on the wall you send for the priest and the priest comes and looks at it and tells you to get everything out before he comes in and so it won't be so it won't be considered unclean and he looks at the wall and then he says okay i'll be back in a week to look again and he comes back in a week and sure enough it's not gone it's grown a little so he digs all that stuff out and they patch up the wall and then he's gone and the third time if he comes then the house must be torn down timber and stone. And we've mentioned this. This is exactly what happens with Jesus in the Gospels. He comes to the temple the first time, and he casts out the money changers, and he says, you've turned my house into a den of robbers, and my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And at the end of the Gospels, he comes back a second time. And again, he throws out the money changers and the same thing. And then in A.D. 70, he comes back a third time and he tears down the house. Well, these angels are guardians of God's holiness. And it's, 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 it's a severe guardianship. And I've traced it to show you how this works its way all the way down to this huge city. It's a picture of God's church right now. We'll get more beautiful as time goes on. But it has 12 gates. And at the 12 gates are an angel per gate, a messenger per gate, and what are they? They're the watchmen of the city. To do what? To keep out the sorcerers the liars, those who do abominable things, the immoral, the cowardly, the unfaithful. That's what they're guarding. They only let in people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So I want to say this. Church is holy. Holy. When we gather, we are the temple of God. He lives in us. We are the bride of the Lamb. He lives in us. And of course, God and the Lamb are holy. And we were redeemed to be holy, to live holy, to think holy. We don't have angels with flying scrolls today. That's not gonna happen. But what we do have is we have the church around the world and each church has its officials. Different churches call them different things. The New Testament calls them elders and overseers and uh, bishops. Ah, I shouldn't say that, overseer is the bishop. Elders and overseers. And shepherds, that's the word I'm looking for. And what do they do? They watch out. And on that, we all have each other, and we watch out. For what? That we be holy. So, our time's up. I wish I had more time. Down comes this city at the end of Revelation. And this city is called the wife of the Lamb and her brilliance is like a crystal clear jasper. And she's a bride adorned for her husband. And then this beautiful lady is described with walls and streets and all that good stuff. But you can see by the description, this is a pure, holy bride. That's what we want to be, a pure, holy bride. We don't want to be what Jesus said about the Pharisees and the scribes, hypocrites. A hypocrite is what Isaiah said of people. This people honor me, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We want to be like this city. It's pictured as a woman with walls 144 cubits thick with big pearls at the gates and somebody there to guard. A city that's described as the bar, the word. It's God's word. That's what we want to be. So, in the Bible... In the Old Testament and the New Testament, cities are always feminine words. Sometimes the gender of a word doesn't seem to fit what it really should be, but a city's always feminine. Why? Because the city at the end of Revelation is described, I mean, you used to read it, you could see it. It's described as impregnable, it cannot be penetrated. It's a pure bride. that's what we want to be. And so what I'm telling you is all of these tabernacles, temples, they're showing the way to God, and He's holy. And you've got to be holy to come to God. That's why we've used as our cult to worship so many times, Hebrews chapter 10. Since, brothers and sisters, we have boldness to enter the holy place, the debar, because of the blood of Jesus, our holiness is solely dependent on the blood of Jesus. And every week, we go through the same movements in our service. The first thing we do is we have a prayer of confession. Why? Because there's nobody here that's sinless. We're forgiven, but each week we go out and sin and we come back, and now we're coming into the Holy Room. We want to be cleaned up, washed up. We do that every week so that we can come into God's room, hear Him talk to us, and then sit down at His table two olive trees, gilded, I should angels. What for? Well, to guard God's holiness. Let's stand. Father, I pray that you would give us an open heart to hear your word, that we would be responsive to it when it points out our failures, our weaknesses, our sins, help us to admit them. Help us not to hide our sin in secret so that an angel has to fly into our house and spend the night and thereby destroy us, but help us to confess and forsake and leave behind and walk in the light. We thank you that we are, by faith, justified through the blood of Christ, and we are right with you. And we recognize that even being right with you, we're still in the flesh, and we still sin. But give us hearts that yearn to live in righteousness, to walk in purity, to be that water that flows from the throne that gives life to those who come into contact with us. This we pray in Christ's
0: name. Amen.